We've been going through this series in Nehemiah, and so far we've got to the point where Nehemiah has returned from Babylon to Jerusalem and guided the rebuilding of the walls, which have just been completed. And now we look at from verse 4 of chapter 7 in the book of Nehemiah. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials of the people, and, and, and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy, those who came up at the first, that is, about a hundred years previously, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rahamiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvai, Nehum, Baana. And following on this is a long list of names of various groups of people uh, that, that returned in that first return 100 years earlier. And then we continue from verse 61. The following were those who came up from Tel Mela, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nekoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakoz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their, reg their registration among those enrolled genealogies, but it, it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Tummim should arise. The whole assembly altogether was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 darics of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 darics of gold, 2,200 minas of silver, uh, and what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 darics of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priests' garments. 
So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. We have a second reading today from the book, the Paul's letter to the Philippians in the New Testament. So if you'd like to turn to that, to Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to start a little bit earlier than um, requested here. Uh, Paul is outlining his qualifications and um, his desire to please God. And from verse 10 he says, His desire is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This is God's word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, every word in your scriptures is given to us for our benefit and good. So we pray for your Spirit's help that we might know and understand what this passage means. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you will help us learn how to live for you through this. For we ask this in your precious name. Amen. Let me share a story from a mountain hiker who is obviously not me. I was in the mountains of Colorado, hoping to get to the Bells Mountains, but it would take quite a hike to get there. As we started and got along, I felt winded already. The air got colder, the oxygen thinner. I was cold but soaked in sweat. Several times I asked my friends for a break, but they kept urging me on. Come on, the, the mountain is just over the next hill. Let's get there and then we'll catch our breath but the mountain wasn't over the next hill. They were lying, so I kept going. Finally, they reached a clearing. One of my friends stepped back from the opening, reached down and grabbed me, soaked in sweat, out of breath, out of energy, but victorious. I made it. I pushed back a branch. I took the final step into the clearing and looked, and there they were, the mighty maroon bells. Their massive peaks were kissing the heavens, and then it hit me. They looked no closer than when we had begun our journey hours ago. All the hiking, all the sweat, all the toil, all of that made no freaking discernible progress. It simply amazed me that we had gone so far, walked so long, and made so little progress. 
The writer of this post is experiencing what is sometimes called the false summit. Especially for mountain climbers, and I've heard for cyclists as well, I've heard because, again, I've never experienced it, the false summit is the place where you, th you think you're heading. You get there only to realise that the summit is actually much further up and much further away. Now, the danger of a false summit is obvious. Defeat, discouragement. You, you work so hard, you get so far, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. Hashtag Lincoln Park. But there's also another danger, and the danger is not realising that you're at the false summit. You reach it, you celebrate, you rest, you stop moving forward, not realising that you're only actually halfway up. Now, today's passage, I don't know if, as you were reading it, did we realise that this passage is a false summit? But I wonder how many of us did realise that as we read it? How many of us actually were falling asleep as the passage was read? Now, if you're new here to Esley Church with us today, uh, we haven't just picked this passage in Nehemiah 7, the second half of it, at random. Uh, if this is your first time at our church, I, I actually hope it doesn't put you off. I hope you see that we're committed to what we call gospel-centred expository teaching in the Bible. And that means that we're keen to learn and apply what God is saying to us in every page of the Bible and to see how every page of the Bible helps us understand and to know Jesus and how to live for him. And that includes sometimes seemingly boring parts of the Bible. So over the past few months, we've been working through this book in the Old Testament called Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah was the leader of God's people. Israel had been punished for their sins and were exiled to a foreign land. And now they were returning home, partly under Nehemiah's leadership. Now, over the past few weeks in particular, we've seen Nehemiah facing opposition as he tried to rebuild the city walls. And at the end of last week, we saw that wall completed. No matter how much opposition Nehemiah faced, he feared and trusted God, and he finished the work. But how is today's passage then a false summit, a place of danger for Israel? Well, let's dive into the details and find out. Uh, when, we finish, uh, on, when we finish work on something, uh, I, I don't know about you, but you know, we, I think we generally tend to take a step back. You, you finish something, you take a step back, and you just survey all that you've done. Right? The home, uh, home do-it-yourself project. Right? You sit back, you take it all in. Uh, one of my Facebook friends is uh, really into caring for his lawn. So he's always posting up before and after photos of the lawn that he's just mowed and taken care of, usually with a beer in his hands, admiring his handiwork. Or Nehemiah here, he has finished building the wall. So what does he do? No, there are no beers cracked open and he doesn't sit back admiring his work. Instead, God guides him into the next thing to do. He needs to do a survey to take a census, basically to do a head count, right? Uh, it's a, uh, in verse 5, we read that he finds the genealogy of those who came up first. It's probably the same genealogy that Ezra produced. And Nehemiah has found this list, and he, again, looks at this list, and he starts checking off the names. So from verse 7 onwards, when we get, then we get a very, very long list of names. Uh, and look, we're not going to tease out all the details of who these people are. I can see some people are already falling asleep. And I bet if we teased out the details even further, I could get most everyone to fall asleep. 
But I do think there are some general things that we should notice in this list uh, from verse 7 all the way to the end of the chapter. So let's have a look at these things. The first thing to notice in this list is who the people are. Right? The list begins with lay people from verses 8 all the way to verse 38. If you can track it down, we get a whole list of lay people. We get the list of sons of particular families and then also men belonging to certain towns. These are the men of Israel. And then you'll notice from verse 39 to verse 60, you kind of get a list of those involved in the worship of Israel. So you look at verse 39, it begins with the priests, verse 43, the Levites, verse 46, the temple servants, and then verse 57, the sons of Solomon's servants. So these are all people who are serving within the temple. Now, again, this is a pretty long list. And this bulk of the list reminds us that worship in the, uh, of Israel in the temple is crucial as they are reestablishing themselves in the land. But then notice in verse 61, notice in verse 61 onwards that this list now contains a division. There's a group of men listed in verse 61 to 65 who cannot prove their lineage. Even some priests can't prove that they are actually Jews, even though some of them have historical connections to King David. And because they can't prove it, there's actually some urgency in them being excluded from service. So they are found out and they are effectively cancelled from serving in the temple. Now, why is that so important? Why? Because the worship of Israel here and now is going to be a top priority. They could not have a non-Israelite, unclean person leading them. It's that serious. Remember, one of the reasons why this whole nation was sent off into exile was because they kept worshipping false gods. So now they are back in the land, they are going to get their worship right. And that worship will include a variety of people. So you've got this interesting little detail in verse 68 uh, of not only people being counted, but also like donkeys and horses and mules and, and camels, right? This actually is some indicator about the wealth of the nation, You've got some people who are wealthy enough to own horses and servants, and then most people who are only, you know, barely, have barely enough to be able to afford a donkey. Uh, this is a mix of people as they're returning into the land. So who are the people then who've made up this kind of really long list uh, in this genealogy? Uh, the point of this list is to say that these are the true people of God. That's why this list is kind of so, in some ways so detailed. That's why there's actually division between those who can prove their ancestry and those who can't. The true people of God are being identified in this list. And then we also see the true people of God giving relatively generously to God's work. You can see that in verse 70 to 72, right? varying amounts according to their ability. Now, that's a lot of detail there to notice as we read through this passage. But the big question comes up, what's the point of all of these details? Most of you know by now that I'm a very big fan of the Marvel movies and the TV shows. And often, once I've seen an episode of something, I'll quickly jump onto YouTube to watch videos outlining all the details I missed while watching the latest episode of She-Hulk or whatever. Uh, the details you miss are often just really, really interesting, and sometimes they help you understand the bigger picture. Right? So what's then the bigger picture of all these details here in Nehemiah 7? 
So as we count these numbers and we see the generosity of God's people, our minds are thrown back to the promises of God. We've touched on this a few times already in this series, the God, that God had promised long before our passage that he would one day bring the Israelites back from exile. The nation that deserved obliteration would be preserved. A remnant of that original remained faithful, and they were faithfully brought back into the land. And this chapter here is a testament to the goodness of God's promises. That he is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. But you, you notice, too, that as you kind of glance over it, the numbers are actually quite small. Some of the counts go into four digits. Most of them are three digits. Quite a number of them are just double digits. The total of the whole assembly, according to verse 66, is only 42,000 men. Assuming that they had wives and families, you know, triple it maybe, quadruple it. 160,000 people-ish in the land compared to perhaps the millions who entered the land in the first place, compared to the millions who grew up in the land and then were eventually taken away. 42,000 here is just a drop in the bucket. So is there then something more to the details? Well, yes, there are. But we're not necessarily going to find it by just focusing on the details of the passage. We need to take a step back and actually survey everything that's happening. So Nehemiah didn't crack open a beer and admire his handiwork, but we kind of will. Um, so sort of, sort of, not, not with a beer, but we do need to admire the handiwork of this writing. You see, when we step back and we find out that this, uh, what we find out is uh, in this passage in Nehemiah 7 is basically that it's a copy of Ezra chapter 2. If you ever flick back to Ezra chapter 2 just before Nehemiah and you read that, it will look basically like a photocopy. Ezra is the book before, and actually both books are often read together, which is why there's a green bar there, right? Because Ezra and Nehemiah are both covering the same period, uh, both trying to help um, the, the exiles come back into the promised land. Ezra was there to help rebuild the temple, and then Nehemiah came and helped rebuild the walls. And then both together, they set about reforming the people. So back to this copying of Ezra 2 and uh, Nehemiah 7 and Ezra 2 are basically the same thing, almost word for word. Now, what's going on there? Well, it helps if you can see what's happening in context in both. See, in Ezra 2, the people had just started returning uh, to the land. They'd come back from exile. Ezra does this head count, and then he sets about rebuilding the temple. Once the, uh, he manages to do that, but the city remains in ruins and is empty of people. And so Nehemiah comes, and he begins the restoration and the rebuild of the walls. And once that is complete, we get this head count all over again. So these two chapters, in some ways, are kind of forming an interesting little bookend. But why? Why this copy and paste job in this chapter today? Now, a clue is given to us in verse 73. Look again at verse 73 up on the screen. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their own towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their own towns. You see what gets repeated there? It's actually 
what is also said at the end of our passage from last week in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. See, there are no houses in Jerusalem. And so everyone is living in their own towns. The city is wide and large, but it's empty. And so that tells us a clue. But what kind of clue is this? Well, it tells us that something isn't finished. You see, the census in Ezra 2 was sort of a way of saying there was work to be done. The headcount there was a reminder of those who were back that they were meant to rebuild the nation, first by rebuilding the temple. And then they had to rebuild the walls. And when that was finished, another headcount was taken. But you see, a headcount like this at that moment, it might have made the people put their hands down that the job was done, so let's take a breather, rest, relax a little bit, get even lazy. The war was done, the high point of the mountain had been reached, time to celebrate, to kick back and relax, it's all done, but it's a false summit. You see, if they thought that the work was done, then actually everything may be lost, there was still work to do. There was a city to repopulate, a people to grow and change and reform. There was lots of work ahead of them. God had been gracious to them in the past. God had preserved them. He had helped them rebuild the temple, rebuild the wall. The gates were up and the city secure, but they could not rest and celebrate. The census here in Nehemiah 7 looks a little bit like a camp photo. Now, we're about to have our church camp in a few weeks' time, and I actually don't know if you realize this or not, but with the potential church camp looming, this may be the last time that we, as this present church, will get together as a whole church. So if you haven't registered yet, I hope that's motivation for you to go and register for this camp. Now, no doubt one of the things that we will do at this camp is take a big group photo. Right? This was from a couple of years ago where we had to do separate camps, like, uh, you know, and we're going to do the same thing again, but hopefully this time all as one without a split camp. And some of us will get that photo and we'll look through the faces and in the future we we'll, might pull this out and look at it again and remember the fun we had and the people we knew and we'll get all nostalgic and we may probably even yearn for that time all over again. The census here in Nehemiah 7 might act in the same way as a camp photo. A list of names to help God's people get all nostalgic and yearn for those days again. Man, remember when we were building the wall side by side, working together? It was such a great time. But that is not what this passage is seeking to do. It's not a passage about looking backwards. It's a passage that acts more like a, its copy, Ezra chapter 2. It's a census taken to kick them up the bum. Here's the head count. Here's the people who have returned. Now roll up your sleeves and get to work. Nehemiah 7 does the same. Here's the head count. Here's the people who have finished rebuilding the city, but it's empty. It needs a population. So roll up your sleeves and get to work. See, those written down here in this genealogy must willingly sacrifice to repopulate the city of God with true worshippers. They must move out of their own towns 
into the city. The genealogy makes clear that those who are gods and those who are not, it represents the true members of Abraham's family. And so they must be the ones to carry on the work. And if it was true for God's people here in Nehemiah's time, then it is even more true for Christians today. We must resist the temptation to nostalgia, to always look back at the good old days. One of my favorite quotes from the TV show, The Office, comes right at the very last episode. One of the characters says, I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. What a quote. That's a great piece of writing, right? Because it's so true, right? We, don't we all want that? Don't we all want to live in the good old days permanently, right? And yet there's such a profound danger there for Christians today because it causes us to be lethargic about the present work. So when we're constantly yearning for the good old days, when we were constant, if we're constantly looking back at time gone past, we forget about the need to be faithful for the future. It's a danger that the Apostle Paul knew all too well as he writes the Philippians. Not that I've already obtained the eternal goal of resurrection with Jesus or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And the context again here is super important. Thank you, Uncle Mike, for pointing it out. Paul has just been boasting about his great past qualifications of being a Jew, being trained as a Pharisee, of getting first-class honours, to being righteous and blameless. But he looks on all of these past accomplishments as nothing compared to knowing and following Jesus. And then he says that he strives to know Jesus in deeper and deeper ways so that he will make it to the end. And what he does, he, he, and what does he do is he moves forward. Verse 13, up there, he doesn't look back. He doesn't get nostalgic for the past. He doesn't rely on his past achievements. He doesn't say, you know, I used to be a youth leader. I used to lead Bible studies. I used to meet up with people to read the Bible and pray. I, I used to serve as a deacon or elder. I used to teach kids' church and Sunday school. I used to do all those things. So now I can sit back and relax and crack open a beer and enjoy my life. No, he presses forward. Whoops. Giveaway of what I'm going to say next. He presses forward. That's the impact the gospel has on your life. We don't need to rest on the good work that we've done. We don't actually do that. We rest on the finished work of Jesus. Our comfort is not rooted in our past good deeds, but on Jesus' death and resurrection for us. And this good news should then compel us forward with more denying ourselves, more laying down our lives, taking up our crosses and following Christ. It should compel us forward in our service and work for Jesus. So we do not look back for long. We do not live our spiritual lives in the past. 
We keep pushing on to the goal of seeing Jesus face to face. So how prepared are you for that moment? That moment when you will give an account for the entirety of your life, how you have spent your waking hours, how you have treated and honoured or dishonoured God and his son, Jesus Christ. Maybe some of us here might need to sit down and actually do business with God and recognise that you're, just, you're not relying on Jesus, you're just relying on maybe your own goodness. Maybe you're looking back on the past and thinking, I'm a good person. Surely I'll be welcomed into the future. It doesn't work that way. Only in the blood of Christ are we forgiven and saved. Maybe some of us here for the first time today need to recognize that and embrace it. Then what does that look like to keep that faith, to have that faith to propel us forward? Well, we might need to take a book, a leaf out of the book of Queen Victoria. Most of us may have heard that Queen Elizabeth passed away. I found out on TikTok. How weird is that? Actually, I got sent a link to a TikTok news article about it. I don't actually have TikTok, so don't look me up. (laughs) Queen Elizabeth was one of the few properly Christian monarchs with a deep and sincere faith, speaking regularly of her faith in Jesus. And in much the same way, she was much like her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, before her who died in 1901, Queen Victoria also had a very overt and Christian faith, transparent about her Bible reading, even her own evangelism as queen and her prayers. Apparently, one of the chaplains to Queen Victoria had just been preaching on the second coming of Jesus. In conversation with Her Majesty afterwards, the queen remarked, Oh, I wish that the Lord would come in my lifetime. The chaplain asked, Why does Your Majesty feel this very earnest desire? The queen replied with quivering lips and her whole countenance lighted up by deep emotion. I should so love to lay my crown at his feet. That is remarkable faith. Yet it's a faith that we can all have and we do have in Christ because it's not based on our goodness or past works. A faith that necessarily compels us to keep pushing on to keep pressing forward. So let's not look back on our past achievements and service and become lethargic. Let us strain forward, faithful to service in his kingdom and faithful to godly living before him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, As we reflect on this passage, may we take up its challenge to live faithfully for you. We've seen this headcount in Israel, this reminder that Israel needs further work to do, to not simply stop and look back and celebrate at a false summit, but to keep pressing forward. So, Father, for us in Christ, for those who have named Jesus as Lord and Saviour, We pray to the same mind, that you would give us this same mind of not resting on past achievements, but pressing forward in our service for you, our living for you to this day. Father, we look forward to eternal rest and retirement with you. 
And now is the time for work. So, Father, help us and challenge us to take that on. For we ask this for the building of your kingdom and the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen.